your Bible with me this morning to the book of First Thessalonians chapter 4, looking at verses 13 through 18. We've been working our way through this book of the Bible, and we've come to uh, what is probably the most uh, famous or most uh, uh, studied passage in the book of First Thessalonians, and it is this one today dealing with the second coming of Christ. When we begin to study about revelations and about end times, uh, there are really two extremes that people sometimes can gravitate towards, one of which is overemphasis, the other of which is just apathy. Overemphasizing a doctrine sometimes that the Bible is oftentimes not real clear about and trying to make a specific viewpoint, one of which is a test for orthodoxy or not. In other words, if you don't hold my view on the end times, you're not really a Bible-believing Christian. And there are several different views. Tonight we're going to get together and and study some of these different views of the end times just to kind of get a, a broad overview Uh, So if you're interested, a lot of people are on end time studies. Tonight would be a good opportunity to come and to get your feet wet on that. But some people take something like the end times and make it a test for orthodoxy, whereas on the other hand, some people just flat out ignore it and say it's too complicated, I don't understand it all, uh, so therefore I'm not going to worry about studying at all. But the problem with that is the second coming of Christ is the second most mentioned doctrine in the New Testament. Second only to salvation by faith in Christ. So to take something that God speaks about a lot in His Word and to say, well, I don't want to even bother with that, is saying I don't really care what God wants me to know about Him and about His plan. So... We need to faithfully look at the whole counsel of God, understand there are some things that are complicated we may not understand, but there are some things that are plain. I heard Alistair Begg say recently that the plain things are the main things, (laughs) and the main things are the plain things, and there are some plain teachings in this scripture that I think we need to understand this morning. It is my prayer that you will find comfort in your grief by meditating on the second coming of Christ. As we all deal with the pain and the sorrow of losing a loved one or perhaps preparing to lose a loved one, that you would find comfort by meditating on the truths of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Let me invite you to stand with me this morning as we read from God's holy word together, paying reverence to these words from our God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 13. These words were written by Paul in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You so much for Your Scriptures, God, in which You reveal Yourself to us. You reveal Your expectations, God. You reveal Your plans and Your intentions. And God, today You have given us a wonderful passage. I believe, God, a passage that not only educates us, but a passage that gives us hope and encouragement. Lord, it is my prayer that we would focus on Christ and on His return and the hearts that are hurting today perhaps, Lord, would be comforted in their grief by Your Word, by Your revelation, by our expectation of what You have in store for us. Holy Spirit, I pray You would draw us closer to Jesus today and that You would speak to our hearts. We pray this in His blessed name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. we come to this theme of the second coming of Christ, we remember this isn't the first time Paul has touched on this subject in this letter, this brief letter to this church there in Thessalonica. The end of chapter 1, he discussed it. The end of chapter 2, the end of chapter 3. We find ourselves here at the end of chapter 4, and we're going to see next week the beginning of chapter 5. And so Paul repeatedly emphasizes this doctrine to this church, and therefore it is something that we also would pay would do well to pay close attention to. The second coming of Christ. And we said last week, looking at verse 11, that Paul was dealing with some folks there in that church that were perhaps not minding their own business, some folks perhaps that weren't desiring to work with their own hands. And then he talks about the doctrine of the second coming. So perhaps this idea that Jesus was coming back perhaps soon led some folks to be lazy in their lifestyle. And Paul was saying, no, if, if that is true, if Christ is coming soon, we of all people should be getting busy living for the Lord and leading others to the Lord as well. We've been looking at in chapter 4 this general theme of, of pleasing God. Back in verse 1, Paul said to them that we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, but you excel still more. And so this general theme of pleasing God is coloring everything Paul is writing about in this chapter. We talked about in verse 3 through 8 the idea of sexuality and pleasing God in our, in our sex life. We looked in last week in verses 9 through 12 about loving the brethren in the church and about how we ought to be behaving towards those who are outside and our lifestyle communicates a message to those who are outside of the church. And then Paul here today gives a word about comforting those who mourn for the deceased. As we make it our ambition to love the brethren, we know that from time to time there will be losses in the church. There will be hurting in the church. There will be, there will be grief amongst the brethren. And Paul says if we are to love the brethren, we need to know how to comfort them in a Christ-like manner. We are to be willing to bestow Christian hope on our brothers. 
And to do that, Paul begins in verse 13 by showing us the reality of Christian hope. God graciously provides us with expectations. He provides us with His Word and how to deal with the subject of grief. The first thing we see in verse 13 is God's instructions for grieving Paul says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren. We don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. We don't want you to be in the dark, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep. Now, that was a polite way of saying those who have passed away. Paul mentions in verse 16 about the dead in Christ. And so he's talking about our brothers and sisters, our loved ones who have gone on to be with the Lord. And Paul says, we don't want you to be God does not want you to be uninformed about their well-being. God gives us his instructions in this passage. Paul writes this entire uh, text so that Christians will not be ignorant about those who have gone to be with the Lord. God's instructions for grieving. God has not left us to figure it out on our own, but then we see God's intentions for Christian grief in verse 13. He says, We don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that... He says, The whole reason we don't want you to be uninformed, the the purpose of this, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Paul talks about the reality of grief. He doesn't say so that you won't grieve. But he says so that you won't grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Now, grief is a reality that we all face. Nothing wrong with grieving the loss of a loved one. But Paul says, for the Christian, there's something different. There's something unique. And that is grieving with hope. It says the rest, those who are lost, those without Christ, their grief is hopeless. I've done funerals before. For people that there was uncertainty about their eternal destination. Or perhaps they had family members there who did not believe in life after death. And the grief is so thick, it's so deep, it's so painful, and there's no hope in those settings. But on the other hand, I've done funerals for individuals that there was no doubt about what they believed. They lived out their faith and there was a a strong Christian testimony. And there's still grief because Christian separation is, is only temporary, but yet it is still separation and there is still pain. There's still heartache. But there's also hope. That makes all the difference in the world. The gospel makes such a difference in those settings. So how do we deal with this how do those without God cope the gospel is our hope and Paul is writing tell us there's the reality of Christian hope that you will grieve but yet you won't grieve as those who have no hope and then he gives us the reason for this in verse 14 he says for because the reason why you can grieve with hope as a Christian is based in the historical reality of Jesus. 
the historical reality of Jesus and who He is and what He has done for us, and we see Christ's former work in verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, do you believe that Jesus died and rose again? Yes, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins, for the sins of anyone who would put their faith and their trust in Him. And I believe Jesus rose again, triumphant over sin and over death. And Paul says, if we believe Jesus died and rose again. Our hope is based in the reality of the historical work of Christ on this earth. And Paul says, because of Christ's former work and because of our faith in Christ's former work we can have faith in Christ's future work he says if we believe that Jesus died and rose again even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus because of our faith in Christ's former work we can put our faith in Christ's future work that he is coming again We can believe with certainty that Christ is coming back and we can also believe with certainty as this passage teaches He's not coming alone. He's coming with our loved ones who have trusted in Him in their lifetime and who have gone on to be with Him in paradise. And when He returns, they're coming back with Him. His past work assures us that He is faithful to his promises if we believe even so God will and I was asked recently by someone if our youth who are going to Pigeon Forge next month if they're going to take the church van or not <laughs> and uh, yeah that was my reaction too yeah I'm like you know we, we've tried that before and uh, it's not proven to be very faithful we made it back it made it back but it's not very reliable it's not very faithful because of its history of being unreliable we don't want to bank in whether or not it will be reliable down the road maybe it needs to prove itself reliable brothers and sisters Jesus has proven himself reliable all the promises of God that are, that are mentioned in Scripture, we can rely and trust on them because we believe Jesus died according to the Scriptures and that Jesus rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. We can believe with certainty the future because we are certain of the past. What God has done for us in Christ. That's the reason for Christian hope. So everything that we think about in the future and, and, and putting our hope in something coming down the road is based in, grounded in, the reality of the work of Christ. The reason for our Christian hope. In verses 15 through 17, Paul talks about the rewards for Christian hope. What are the benefits of looking forward? What are, what are the benefits of anticipating the future work of Christ. Paul talks about these. First of all, in verse 15, we see his revelation of the details. God gives us a word on these matters. Paul says, For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord. Paul says, This isn't just something I made up. 
This isn't just speculation on my part. Well, you know, if it's up to me, I, I think this is going to happen. Or in my opinion, I, I believe... He says, no, we say this to you by the word of the Lord. God gave Paul an authoritative word, a message on this matter, and Paul is communicating this to the church. And if it was an authoritative word, if it was a word from God then to that church, it's still the word of God today to this church. The authority that it carried with the Apostle Paul in Thessalonica, it carries the same authority and the same trustworthiness for you and I here today. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Perhaps in that church there were some that were concerned because Paul had told them and taught them, you know, when Jesus returns, we can expect this great arrival. and His, his, his second advent on the earth, as we're going to see, will be a lot different than the first go-around. And there's going to be this return of Jesus in glory and there's going to be this excitement. And Perhaps there were some in the church that said, well, you know, that, that's, that's well and good for us because we will be here to witness it. But what about those who have already passed away? Now, we, we believe they're, they're in heaven, but are they going to miss out on all the excitement? And Paul says, you don't need to worry about them <laughs> because they have passed through death into life everlasting, they're going to be receiving some priority in this matter. And Paul says, we will not precede those who've already gone on to be with the Lord. That's his revelation on the detail. And then he goes on to explain, you know, what does he mean by this? Verse 16, 4. Paul's grounding in, in this statement of, we will not precede them. Why do you say that, Paul? Verse 16, 4, because... And in this, the thing we see is his return by descent. That Christ is coming. Verse 16, for the Lord himself. It was an emphatic statement there. For the Lord himself. Jesus isn't going to send someone else to do this on his behalf but God the Son Himself will descend. And in that, you see, Christ's dealings with us is always by His condensation. How He always condescends to come down to us to deal with us because He is God on high. He is the Lord on the throne, but yet He condescends. And here we see physically, literally, we will see the Lord descend. The apostles were told in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 11, the same Lord who left will return in the same way that you saw Him go. They saw Him ascend into the clouds in heaven, and we are told physically, visibly, He will return in the same way. We can expect this glorious descent from heaven. And we are told it's with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, there is noise in this return. 
There is no secret about what is taking place. There is an announcement from heaven. It is time. There is the voice of the archangel perhaps rallying the armies of heaven. As we read in the book of Revelation. And we see the trumpet of God announcing. The trumpets in the Old Testament was to announce and to gather. And the trumpets in the Old Testament were to prepare the battle cry for warfare. And it is time for the conquering king to return for his people. We see the descent of the Lord, his return. A personal return. The Lord himself, a physical return, will return in the same way you saw him leave. A visible and an audible return, a glorious return. When Jesus came the first time, born to a lowly family, laid in the manger, the only people who even knew of his arrival at that time were shepherds and wise men following the star from afar. Not so the second coming. Jesus himself said, like lightning flashes from the east to the west, so shall the return of the Son of Man be. He says, if anyone says to you, the Lord, he's returned, he's out there in the desert somewhere, he says, don't believe it. (laughs) Because when I return, you're going to know. All the earth will know. His return by descent. And then in verse 16, we also see the resurrection of the dead. He says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Paul doesn't go into a lot of details in this text about the resurrection body. He speaks of that elsewhere in book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that we will receive bodies like the Lord's resurrected body. That when the Lord does return that the dead in Christ who are with Him now in glory their souls will return and be reunited with a resurrected glorified body. You see in heaven we're going to have bodies. We will have a physical reality because God created Adam and Eve with a physical body before the fall. So God's original design for mankind was to have a body and a soul. And sin came in and caused death and separation. But when Christ returns, because He was raised, He is going to undo that separation of body and soul. And the dead in Christ will rise again And our loved ones, many of which who struggled physically before going to be with the Lord, many of whom we saw physically, their bodies shriveling up and and battling disease and age and suffering and the loss of, of sight and hearing sometimes and things of this nature, the inability to walk and to move and to provide and take care of themselves, all of that will be gone. And that glorified body they will have will be perfect. No sickness, no disease, no suffering, no pain. Strong, vibrant, useful for service to the King. There is hope for our loved ones 
because of the resurrection of Christ guarantees the resurrection of the dead. Then in verse 17, he talks about the rapture of the delivered, those who are alive and remain in verse 17. He says, well, we know the dead in Christ will be raised first when Christ comes back. And What about us? He says, then we who are alive and remain. And, and, and some speculate that maybe Paul thought the return of Jesus was going to be in his lifetime, but I think Paul teaches the church and teaches us we ought to be expecting that at any moment it could be in our lifetime and Paul certainly thought that it very well could have been within his it says then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them the word caught up seized grabbed snatched in Latin raptir we eat the word rapture from this Think about a, a bird of prey. Sometimes it's called a, a raptor. Why? Because they've got those talons and they can swoop down and snatch. And we think about the return of Jesus and how He is going to catch up His church. Those believers who are alive and remain at that moment will be, will be caught up together. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 at the last trumpet's in the blink of an eye, he says, we will all be changed. So not only will our, our loved ones who have gone on to be with the Lord receive glorified bodies, he says, when, when Christ returns and the rapture comes at the last trumpet, the trumpet of God, we will all be transformed as well. And we're going to be caught up with them, all of God's church, Christ's church, the bride with the groom, with the Lord in the air and it says to meet the Lord in the air that word meet is an interesting word in the New Testament it's used two other times one time it's used of the parable of the ten virgins when Jesus was talking about being prepared for the second coming. He says there are five faithful virgins who trimmed their, their, their lamps with oil and they were ready. And it says when the bridegroom came, they went out to meet him and then welcomed him into the bridal party in which he was going to. The other instance it's used, Paul, when he is going to Rome in the book of Acts, and it says the believers from Rome, they came out from Rome to meet Paul and to welcome and escort him into Rome. The other times it's used in the Greek, it's always used of an important dignitary on their way to visits and those that come out of the town to welcome the king in all of his splendor and all of his glory. They come and welcome him and escort him into their town and so when Christ returns he raptures his church the dead in Christ are raised with him we are transformed and at the sound of the last trumpet in the blink of an eye and we're caught up together with the church to meet the Lord in all of his glory and accompanying him in his victory march and interestingly enough also the Satan is called the prince of the power of the air in the New Testament. And we're going to meet the Lord where? In the air. The conquering king says, it's time. I'm going to take back what is rightfully mine. 
and we're going to be there with Him when it happens. The rapture of the delivered. But also, we see in verse 17, our reunion with the departed. And I think this is what Paul really wants to emphasize in this passage. Because remember, he's talking about in verse 13, not being uninformed, uh, uninformed about those who have fallen asleep, but not to grieve as the rest who have no hope. And he says, well, why do we have hope? Well, Jesus is coming back. What's so special about that? He's bringing his church with him. And, and we see in verse 17, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. With them. In the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be. We shall always be the reunion with the departed. We will be caught up together with them. Who is them? Our loved ones, brothers and sisters. Our loved ones who are in the presence of Christ now, they're going to be raised with glorified bodies. We're going to be transformed with glorified bodies. We're going to be caught up together with them. A heavenly reunion. A glorious reunion caught up together with them in the air to meet the Lord. And so we all, all of us, the departed, those who are alive and remain, we shall always be with the Lord. Think about that. Not only are we going to be reunited with our loved ones now, how awesome, how glorious that's going to be, but we're going to be with the Lord. We're going to be with Christ. In heaven. And heaven comes to earth as the new Jerusalem descends out of heaven. And this earth is transformed back into paradise. And Jesus himself will be with us. And he will be our God and we will be his people. Together with them. Our reunion with the departed. You know, we read this and... And obviously, we want more. All right, Paul. He, he's telling. Okay, Jesus is coming back. There's going to be the, the, the there's going to be the, the shouts, the command, the trumpet, the dead in Christ rise. We're going to be raptured. We're going to meet the Lord in here. All right, get, some more details, Paul. We want more details. You know, we we want we want to know exactly how this is all going to transpire. But yet, the point of this passage was not to to stoke our our curiosity. Paul gave this word not to, not to educate us in theology. The point of this passage is to encourage the church. Paul wasn't just trying to give us some head knowledge here. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren. We don't want you to be ignorant. Why? So you won't grieve as those who have no hope. The point of the passage is found... In verse 18, we see the responsibility of Christian hope. Paul's given us this, this message of hope. Now what do we do with it? Do we say, wow, it's so cool to know these things. Paul says in verse 18, therefore. Remember what the word therefore is. Therefore, it's there to remind you all that was just said. Paul gave all of this doctrine on the second coming of Christ as as brief as it was, Paul gave this doctrine, therefore, why? Comfort one another. 
comfort one another. Comfort the saints. One another. Paul's talking about loving the brethren. Back in verses 9 through 12. And we come to situations where we've got brethren who are grieving, and I know there are hearts that are grieving here today. Paul says comfort one another. The word comfort there, second person plural imperative verb, that means all of you a command to comfort. It's not an option. Not a suggestion. Well, it'd be really nice if y'all would think about comforting each other. No, comfort. Imperative command, comfort. We are to comfort who? One another. Who is one another? Christians. You see, that's the catch with this idea of Christian hope. The only reason it's Christian hope is because there is Christ involved. If you're here today and you don't know Christ and you were to die, then those who grieve your loss have no comfort in your loss. It's comfort one another. That means comfort each other who know that we've got a relationship with Christ that our loved ones who've gone on before us, they also have a relationship with Christ. That's what makes this thing work. Christ. Without Christ, there's no hope. So our responsibility is to comfort the saints. Comfort, to call to one's side, to summon to one's aid, to encourage, to console. Comfort. Interestingly enough, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit. He says, I will send you another comforter. Same word, paraclete, in Greek. Paul says parakletos. In Greek, the comforter. Paul says comfort in the power of the Holy Spirit. Comfort one another. You as a Christian have the Holy Spirit. You are to, to be God's instrument of comfort. Comfort one another. Comfort the saints. Come alongside the saints. Grieve with the saints. And encourage the saints. How are we to do that? Comfort, Paul says in verse 18, with Scripture. With Scripture. He doesn't say, come alongside one another and say, well, it's going to be all right. How do you know it's going to be all right? Well, I guess. Uh, I've got a feeling everything's okay. In my opinion, I, I speculate that, you know, if it were up to me, I, I think everything's all right. I, I just feel, no, Paul says, comfort one another with these words. With these words. What words? These words, he says, I gave to you by the word of the Lord. Comfort one another with God's word. Why? Because that's solid. Why? Because that is sound. Why? Because it is true. It is trustworthy. It's an errant. All Scripture is what God breathed and profitable. Because this is God's word, we've got comfort. We don't have to guess or hope in just our wishes. Our hope is grounded in this book. Comfort one another with these words. What are these words? We believe Jesus died and rose again. 
Comfort one another with that fact. Your loved one believed Jesus died and rose again. And so we will meet them in the air. Comfort one another with these words, these powerful, God-breathed words. We can grab onto that. It is solid. We can hold firm to these words. Not just speculation or human opinion. These words. The gospel truth places our suffering within the context of God's eternal plan. Christ is coming again. God's not through with your loved one yet. God's not through with you yet. God's not through with your relationship with them yet. It ain't over, folks. Comfort one another with these words. There's a lot of sickness going on, weather change and all these things. And Like many of, of your households, our household's been dealing with, with cough and congestion and all these things and, and the other day Nancy was putting some salve on Kylie to help relieve her breathing help relieve the, the, the suffering to, to comfort what she was going through the salve if your heart is hurting today and you are grieving over the loss of a loved one parents, spouse even the loss of a, a, of a child Paul says that Scripture, these words are the salve that you and I are responsible to apply to the hearts of those who hurt. That means you and I, we need to know these words. We need to believe these words. We need to know these words. And we need to apply these words. We are to be the hands by which the salve of these words are applied. It is my prayer, brothers and sisters, that you would see theology and doctrine not as something that is boring and something that is bland and something that is unrelative. It is these words that make all the difference in the world to someone who is hurting. Paul wasn't writing just to give us some cool information to know about end times doctrine. Paul's purpose, therefore, comforts one another with these words. Let's pray.